Well, hello there and welcome to Spheres of Influence. This is the podcast where we deal with those important things in our lives, those important spheres in our lives, religion, politics, and culture. I'm Dennis Sanders and I'm your host. Uh, This episode will be kind of a week in review um, potpourri. So we'll be looking at a few uh, things that have happened this week and um, giving some just some advice of what might be our opinion of what might be coming down the pike um, in various issues. Uh, Before we get into that, um, I do want to say, please consider um, giving a rating for this podcast on whatever um, platform you use and also leaving a review. It's, it's really helpful to do that. Um, Helpful to know what you all are thinking Helpful to know what ideas you might have. Um, So if you can, please do that. Would also love if you share this podcast with someone who might be interested. That is important and we would love, uh, I would love to have it um, spread the message out a little farther. Um, Also to let you know, coming up, we um, should be having another interview. Um, I'm hoping with someone that has been involved in various um, anti-Trump, never-Trump groups um, who uh, I think it would be just an interesting conversation to talk about what is next uh, for this small faction in the GOP. Will it remain in the GOP? I'm working on um, the dates, so hopefully my hope is that we will be interviewing this week so that you will see an episode coming up later this week. Uh, No promises, but I just wanted to let you know about that. So, uh, let's begin with our little uh, trip down memory lane. So, of course, this week was uh, the week that we, what had been feared and uh, finally happened, Liz Cheney was uh, voted out of her position as a, um, conference chair. It's very fascinating that they decided to do a voice vote this time, which, um, if you remember the last time they voted on her position, it was, um, it was a secret ballot, but we know who voted for, who voted against this time. You don't know, um, which seems a bit cowardly, but that's kind of the way that it has gone. Um, she has, uh, again, been uh, let go. Um, you know, there's not much to say. No one's surprised that this was going to happen. I think one of the things that has bothered me is kind of the, what I don't want to say is the perfectionism or snobbery of some on the left. Um, that, of course... They remember either her father's position or her position on something or that she voted for this on that time in 1987 or something, whatever, what have you. But it's basically a way of saying that it's not good enough. And I really have to say, I think that that's complete bull. Um, Just to see a lot of, of progressives that are kind of on their high horse. And I think, you know, there, I I will say that there have been some that have not been that way. Um, 
Sheila Jackson Lee, who is a representative, uh, I believe, from Houston, uh, who's a Democrat, I think wrote a really nice and very good um, op-ed just kind of praising uh, Cheney along with uh, former President George W. Bush and uh, Mitt Romney for, for their uh, stand. So it's great to hear that. I, I think it's just frustrating with people who I think the problem isn't that these um, Liz Cheney spoke up. I mean, they're, they're, they could care one way or the other, but they think that that's really the sole province there of their side. And so I'm just not really crazy about that. Um, but we know that this has happened. It's been interesting. A lot of people have talked about this as how this will make the party smaller. And I don't know about that. Uh, Damon Linker, who is a writer for the week, um, he also is a um, panelist on uh, Beg to Differ, one of the Bulwark podcasts, has you know written about the fact that this past year they you know most of us who were never Trumpers were really thinking and that this would be a wipeout um, because of course we thought with Trump being so bad and how he was handling COVID, but they actually did better. I believe there was like an extra 11 million people voted for Trump this time around. Um, you know, more African-Americans, more Latinos have voted in favor. So I think, you know, one of the reasons we aren't going to be seeing an autopsy of any type, uh, besides the fact that um, Mr. Trump would not have it because that meant would meant mean admitting that he lost but it's also that they didn't do as bad and so they can at least at least tell themselves that things were not so bad that they didn't do so um, they didn't do so bad and and the fact is they didn't they are only a few seats within striking distance in 2022 the senate is basically 50 50 so the fact is, the Republican Party isn't going away. It just because they hire, they uh, put someone in charge like Donald Trump, just because there are, the the party has become more openly racist. Doesn't mean that it's going to change anything. I'd like to remind you that, up until the nineteen sixties, the Democratic Party, in many cases, was incredibly racist. And, you know, they did rather well. So I think those of us who are dissidents have to realize that the party is not going to just disappear. And I think sometimes we need to stop saying that, that we think, stop saying that it will, because they're doing well. And, and the fact is, there are lots of people that for many different reasons, like President Trump, former President Trump. And so we have to kind of deal with that. And what does that mean? Related to that, this week um, was finally this um, kind of document and group that came 
into being. It's a group of made up of about a hundred um, individuals uh, from various Republican administrations that are against uh, anti-Trump, and they are a call for American renewal. Um, they, the way that it has been at least spun is that it's a um, organization that is basically asking for the GOP to change, and if not, they will split and become their own party. Um, they are kind of midway between a third party and a faction uh, within the GOP. Um, they are planning on running people, either as Republicans or you know whatever party they want to run, um, and to try to be a... Um, maybe a counter-conservative uh, voice. And I've been looking forward to this. I'm, you know, there's a part of me that is hopeful for this. Um, it is something that is, is needed. But I would be, I think, lying if I didn't say, I don't know if it has a chance. And I have that for a few reasons. The first is there have been a lot of organizations and groups and people who have put up websites and um, said that they are going to do something to try to bring the party back from whatever abyss they think it's, it's heading towards. And I mean, I've seen those things for about 15 years and they're around for a little bit of time. They might even get some good um, press and then they vanish. They, they just don't stick around. And while I think that the group of these people, I think is fairly impressive, uh, while I think some of the, the values that they are stating are important, there's a part of me that is concerned that how does this move beyond just a nice-looking website? How does this become an actual sustainable movement um, that is capable of changing um, American politics, that is capable of really making it possible that the Republican Party as it is now, which is far more nationalistic, far more authoritarian, uh, can be neutralized. And I think to do that, to be a force that can neutralize the party, you have to really work hard. It's just not, you're not going to get it by just saying, you know, we stand on the good side. Um, that's just not going to work. And I, there's a concern about that. Because I think that if you're going to do this, as the old saying says, goes at it, if you're going to go and uh, into a fight kill the other person. You know, you, you have to have that kind of, I think, hunger that you're willing to win because it's that important. And I worry, do these people think it's that important? Uh, it was interesting, one of the um, articles that I read, from, and this one was from The Guardian, was uh, from a former advisor to Mitt Romney, Kevin Madden, um, and he was wondering, you know, how is this group going to mobilize? How is this movement going to grow? 
Will it grow inside the party or outside the party? And I think, <coughs> excuse me, the thing that was important here was what he said um, towards the end. And he says the following. Anybody who thinks that this is going to be waged between now and the midterms or now in 2024 is probably being very unrealistic. The more realistic scenario is that if Liv Cheney is to believed about her dedication in this respect, today is the first day of what is probably a decades-long battle for the direction of the party. And I think he's right. I think this is not going to be over by 2024. This is something that has, it's going to be a long fight, partially because what has happened in the GOP didn't just start with um, Donald Trump. Donald Trump accelerated all of this. Um, he is an accelerant, but some of the things that were happening um, were already happening long before he uh, decided to become a Republican. And I think the question that I have about uh, American renewal is, are they able and are they willing to stay in the fight for years, not just for, you know, a short time? And are they willing to mobilize people? And I think that that's always been a weakness of some of these groups. Again, various groups that I have seen over the years is that none of them are interested really in mobilizing people. They just think that if you put up a website, people will just come to it. And I don't think it works that way. I think you have to get on the ground. It's going to take a lot of work. It's not sexy. And it's probably going to take a long time. Um, because the only way that we're going to kind of beat back Trumpism is going to be a long, sustained battle. And unless we are willing to do that, it's not going to happen. And I'm fearful that there are people who aren't willing to fight because that's what this is going to have to entail is fighting. I think the um, one of the other things people have talked about um, in this, I mean, he's has been talked about a lot in the past from Steve Tellis and some others is about having a faction within the GOP that is calling for renewal and for change. And I always don't know where I am on that. I think I would love to see more um, of a willingness to um, work kind of within the GOP, if that could be, because I, you know, third parties are always hard in the United States. But I don't know. I, I don't know if it's too late. There's a part of me that thinks it is too late um, for any type of actual um, work within the GOP. Because I think the thing about factionism is even within a faction, you have to work with the people who are there. Um, and that means, I mean, it means working with people that are outside of your faction, not just, um, you don't just get to kind of create your faction and never have to worry about other people. You have to, at some point, 
spend some time working with these at some point to work together in some ways. And do you want to work with these people? And what happens if you are a faction within the, the, the kind of the Trumpists are really going to go after you? And in some ways they have the money, but I think more importantly, they have the drive. I mean, these people are, are crazy enough that they'll do anything. Can we, could you do that within the party? I don't know. I'm not certain. We need to have a two-party system, a working two-party system in this country. Um, 2022 could be the year that... Um, especially the House swings back to the Republicans. And normally that's not a problem, but it is now a problem because we have to deal with um, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a nut, and Matt Gates, who seems to, as they say, like him young, like illegally young, and... You know, you're not really dealing with um, the cream of the crop. And Lord knows what type of kind of crazy conspiratorial things that they are going to be putting out for legislation. Um, or things that I think are going to be hurtful to immigrants and um, refugees and others. So I think... Again, if American renewal is serious, I really hope that they're going to be running a lot of good candidates, especially for 2022, um, to battle some of these Republicans. Um, but they also are looking towards 2024 to put up some good candidates. Um, but, you know, all of this is going to require some work. It's not, you, you know... Getting a few good headlines isn't going to work. You have to move forward and you have to move fast. And um, I pray that it will, um, this will succeed. I'm just concerned um, just because I've seen this happen before and I don't want this to be wasted. One of the things that I think has... Um, one of the reasons I believe that the Republican Party is where it's at is because it really hasn't listened or dealt with kind of the changing um, outlook in America. Um, I think if you were to look at some um, different websites, different groups, you would see that, for one thing, our um, the amount of wages have have in many ways stagnated for at least 40 years, going almost on 50 years. I think a lot of the, you know, we're seeing kind of changes in the in industries. And, you know, in my own life, I come from Flint, Michigan. Flint was the town where GM was born. Um, it was, for me, growing up as a kid in the 70s and 80s, 
was a town that had at the at the time eighty thousand people in the area worked for GM. Specifically, we're not talking about any ancillary jobs, which are, there were probably equal number, if not more. But, you know, we are dealing with a lot of places like Flint or Youngstown where those industries have left. And what's been, what's remains is kind of economic devastation. And people who are having a harder time, especially in the working class, of finding new jobs. And when we start to kind of talk about that, I think that there are people within conservatives who immediately get nervous because they're afraid you're going to start talking about um, industrial policy, that you're going to have something that will pick winners and losers, and that's going to destroy American capitalism. Now, I need to say straight off, I support American capitalism. I support capitalism. I believe that it can lift people out of poverty. I think I've shared this before, but I think it was amazing for me when I uh, visited China in uh, 1999 to see how this country was developing so quickly and how Capitalism, in many ways, was lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. So I believe poverty can make a difference. I mean, I believe capitalism can make a difference. But we also have to remember that capitalism has within it kind of this sense of creative destruction. Um, this is kind of the thing, the... the uh, point that Joseph Schumpeter makes, who's the economist, is that creative destruction is a fact within capitalism. If you're going to have new industries that will come up and flourish, you're going to have to have old industries fall. And of course, what that means is that certain areas of our country all will all of a sudden become rich and prosperous and other parts of the country will become poor and desolate. And so Schumpeter was concerned about that because he believed that what he thought was is that capitalism would then become a victim of its own success. And what would happen is it would inspire reactionary and populist movements who would rally against the destructive side. And, of course, when you do that, you're also strangling any potential for future creativity, new industries, all of that. And, in a strange way, that's where we are right now. We have... The reason I think Trumpism has arisen in our country and I've, I've always said that before is that it's not simply racism it's because in some ways there hasn't been really a lot of help for those people who in, in essence become the quote-unquote losers in the rise and fall of different industries which is part of capitalism um, that's, that is the part of it 
the whole point of creative destruction. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, industries aren't going to always last forever. The new things replace the old. But there is a problem with that. Um, one of the things I think that is funny, I, I think Schumpeter was always afraid that this is going to be kind of the, the thing that would end kind of liberal democracies. But in most developed countries, that's not happened, even though there have been, of course, reactionary movements. What they did was um, create free markets with social insurance. And so having these things, um, and I've been, re I read a lot, especially from Sam Hammond, who works at the Niskanen Center, um, and he talks a lot about the fact in, in one of his recent ones called the Free Market Welfare State, he even looked at one survey where, um, of ele a national elections in Europe, that having a kind of robust welfare state is what depresses reactionary political parties. Um, and he supports the idea that he's that the reason we are seeing the rise of this populism or reactionary movement within the United States is in many ways a, a refutation of small government that has basically over the years has said that any type of regulation or social spending is going to destroy economic freedom or actually freedom in and of itself. And I think part of it is that we have this really misunderstanding of what socialism is. You know, we're using the, the term socialism and I think one of the problems on the center-right is that socialism has basically come to mean any type of government program. So Obamacare passes, that's socialism. All of the stuff that is happening under President Biden, and, and let me say that it is stuff that I think there is a lot to be critical of, but we immediately slap the word socialism on it. And that's not what socialism is. Obviously, someone like Trump has not sat down and read a lot about what socialism is. It's a catchphrase for him. But this is what Frederick Hayek, who basically is kind of the patron saint of free market um, capitalism, has said about what socialism really is. And this is what he says. And this, is, this comes from The Road to Serfdom, his very famous book. Socialism meant unambiguously the nationalization of the means of production and the central economic planning which made this possible and necessary. In this sense, for instance, in this sense, Sweden, for instance, is today much less socialistically organized than Great Britain or Austria, though Sweden is commonly regarded as more socialistic. So socialism is really about the means of production. It's about central planning. And, and 
we really have not here in the United States had central planning, even though we think we have. If we look at World War II or some of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's programs, but central program planning is something far more. You know, it's like the, these five-year plan, plans that you would hear in the Soviet Union. Those were things that were actually plan, plan central planning. Um, if you want to look at countries that have had something that is socialist, that taken the means of production, probably the the the, the most visible one is uh, the National Health Service in the UK. Because basically what happened was that the government um, controls everything. If you think of anything that deals with healthcare, it's all under government control. So the hospitals are government controlled. The nurses and doctors are basically um, agents, are employees of the state. Um, everything that you can imagine for in the National Health Service is run by the state. Now, you can agree with that or don't agree with that. Um, now, I, it seems that a lot of um, Brits love the National Health Service. Um, that is, it's something that they consider a national treasure. So, you know, if you are listening to this from the UK, uh, just don't come at me. But... That is a kind of an example of what it means to have the means of production. Obamacare is not socialism. Even though you might think it's socialism, it is not socialism. It is not taking over means of production. Hayek continues to say something about what is socialism and what is really what we're talking about here, which is social insurance. And so he says... This, where, as in the case of sickness and accident, neither the desire to avoid such calamities nor the efforts to overcome their consequences are, as a rule, weakened by the provision of assistance, where, in short, we deal with genuinely insurable risk. The case for the states helping to organize a comprehensive system of social insurance is very strong. There are many points of detail where those wishing to preserve the competitive system and those wishing to supersede it by something different disagree on the details of such schemes. And it is possible, under the name of social insurance, to reintroduce measures which tend to make competition more or less ineffective. But there is no incompatibility in principle between the state's providing of greater security in this way and the preservation of individual freedom. So what Hayek is saying here is economic freedom, individual freedom, is not necessarily threatened by social insurance unless it is planning to introduce measures that can make the competition that is part of capitalism ineffective. So if a country has a burgeoning auto industry and they decide to add um, health insurance that doesn't, if it doesn't affect the day-to-day -day concerns of those industries, 
he doesn't have as much a problem of having that. Now, if you want to understand what is socialism, um, then this is actually um, where Hammond, uh, Sam Hammond, decides to show the difference. And so he shares contemporary Sweden, which especially on the left, people and on the right are think is like some socialist bastion and Venezuela. Both of the countries in some ways are described as social democracies, but in reality, they couldn't be more different. So in Sweden, in both the 19th and the 20th centuries, they designed social policies. They designed social policies on the basis of things like a people's insurance. So they had social insurance schemes from child allowances to old age pensions. And they were always created in the backdrop of a, a very um, capitalistic economy. Of course, this is the land of Ikea and Volvo. So this is a country that believes in um, capitalism. And the thing is, is that this kind of putting these things together to have a very robust uh, social welfare state and a robust economy um, that was lighter on regulation, I should add, allowed for Sweden to grow 70% faster um, in a kind of a hundred year period than the United States. And it went from becoming one of the poorest countries in Europe to one of the world's richest. So that's Sweden. Venezuela is different. And the you know, as we know, it is basically an economic basket case. And the reason it's that is because of people like the former leader, Hugo Chavez, and now his successor, Nicolas Maduro, um, who had this vision of what they called socialism for of the 21st century. It was very anti-capitalist. The Chavista regime basically went against economic, um, um, economic freedom. They nationalized a lot of things. They nationalized the oil industry. Um, or Well, that was already somewhat nationalized, but took control of it in a way that made it not uh, function as well. They instituted wage and price controls. They added a lot of um, restrictions on choice. Um, what Venezuela is, is an interventionist state. It literally comes in and intervenes in the happenings of the economy. Sweden, on the other hand, is what you would call a social insurance state. Um, they aren't involved in what happens with businesses. You know, if you want to go to Ikea to buy um, a Billy bookcase, the state's not going to come in there and interfere with that. What they are going to do is provide different things that will help you, such as insurance, um, on the side. And so in some ways, in some ways, it is, I think, of kind of a almost libertarian virtue. 
I know that's going to kind of freak out some people. Um, it, this reminds me of something that Tyler Cowen, who is also considered a libertarian, and he talks about the, this as the paradox of libertarianism. Um, economic liberty, capitalism, that's what makes nations rich. But the funny thing is that the richer that nations become, in some ways they want more government. Now that they can afford it, they want more government. And he thinks that the failure for libertarians is that they, they aren't embracing that connection. That as a country becomes richer, they want a bigger government. Um, he, and he actually says, you know, the major libertarian response to modernity is to simply wish that the package deal we face isn't a package deal. And so what we want is thinking that if you become rich, then you don't have to worry about government. But the reality is, and I think this is something I totally agree with him, is that the richer you get, I think, as a society, all of a sudden, things that you are see as problems that you couldn't afford to deal with, now you can. And so you want to do something with that, and how do you do that? Is that through government? So if you're a maybe a middle-income country that for years um, had problems with health care, that there were millions and millions of people who didn't have affordable health care. And then over the years, over the decades, you become a higher-income country. Well, all of a sudden now, you have more money. The society has more money. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to look at the fact that there are still lots of people without health care and you're going to want more government to deal with the problem that you're facing because those two things, again, go together. If you want a, company, a country to be rich, it is also going to be more interested in having government fulfill some of the needs that had been problems for a long time. Um, one of the things that I would, I, I will put into the show notes is the thing about um, High Tory America, um, which is really about the High Tory tradition in Canada. High Tory tradition is also could be called Red Tory. Um, and this was a tradition within conservatism um, that I think is, is it's akin to what people would have called moderate republicanism, uh, Rockefeller republicanism here in the States. Um, it was probably most exemplified by the um, John Diefenbaker, who was the form, a former um Canadian Prime Minister. He was a Prime Minister probably around the time of the late 50s and early 60s. Um, and he kind of exhibited a different kind of conservatism than what you might think of. Now, granted, I think even non-high Tory conservatism in Canada is a little bit more for lack of a better word, egalitarian than American conservatism. But I think um, the article, I think, is something worth looking at.
Um, and I think, you know, there has been a lot of talk ever since the um, jobs report came out uh, for April um, that was not so great. And especially among conservatives, there has been this belief that the extra money that was given to people, um, especially during the pandemic for unemployment, is basically making it um, easy for people to stay uh, out of work. And I think that there are a few things, and, and I should also add that that has had some consequences where some states are ending those extra payments. Um, some of them are, are adding signing bonuses, but basically they are trying to, they think that this will have, what they're doing will get people back to work. And I think that there are a few things here that we need to consider. Um, the first is that this is one jobs report. We don't know if this is going to um, be the same thing next month. You know, if it happens two or three months in a row, something is going on. But if it happens just one month, and let's say next month the May outlook is not as bad, well, then what does, what, what does that mean? I think there are people that are looking for something and this basically answered the question, gave, gave them the answer that they wanted. I think there are a few things that I want to share about that. The first is we have to wonder if their people aren't going back to work. The question is why? Um, and I think the, the thing that we need to understand that we're not dealing with normal times here. Um, we're dealing with a pandemic. A lot of people who were working in frontline industries, whether that was in restaurants or in uh, supermarkets, um, which all of those don't pay a whole lot, they may not, and they lost their job, they may not want to immediately go back because they were worried about how, you know, that they had caught it, they could catch the disease and they're not necessarily crazy about heading back. Or maybe what happened was that they decided this is not what I want to do anymore. So we have to take that into account. Something about the pandemic may have changed people's minds to immediately get back to work. Two, I think I was someone that would have agreed with a lot of libertarians and conservatives that too much money would keep people away from going to work. And there's still a part of me that agrees with that. But I think that assumes that everyone basically, if they're given a lot of money from the government, are just will just take it and don't won't ever work. And that they'll just be lazy. And I think that that assumes too much. Um, I think people then think that the people just want to um, lie around and we have to make sure that they don't get a huge amount of money for um, unemployment. So then that will force them back to work, which of course is what we want is for them to work. And conservatives, we are good at focusing on getting people back to work. And there is, you know, the whole concept of the best welfare program is a job. 
there is some truth to it again, but sometimes I think we live by slogans and we live by theories and not by real life. I have been, I have used unemployment. I've been unemployed and have, have had unemployment from the state. The first thing you should know is that you don't get a huge amount from the state. Um, and if you're someone that is trying to pay bills, that can put a crimp on things. Um, as I've said before, I was unemployed during this time period. So that meant I fell under some of these higher uh, premiums or higher um, payments. And I think that the, in some ways I considered it a godsend. Not so that I could stay and not do work because I wanted to go back to work. I think that the human drive is to to be creative, not to sit around and do nothing. And um, But it gave me breathing room. It allowed me to be able to pay bills. It allowed me to kind of live my life as I was looking for work. Because I think the hard thing right now is, is in the we're dealing with unemployment is how hard it is to try to find a job when you are also worried about making ends meet. And I think that those are things that people forget is that it's hard to do that. And maybe we don't want to go and up and raise them to some of the levels we had during the pandemic. But I think that we really need to rethink unemployment and what it means. And I think as a whole, we need to stop really to look with disdain towards any type of government help. Because the fact is of the matter is you can be as self-sufficient as you want to be. At some point, something is going to happen and you won't be able to do it on your own. And that doesn't make you weak. And it doesn't mean that you are relying on the government, but it does mean and think that government can be there to help when it's necessary. I mean, that's the whole concept of insurance is that it is there when you need it. You know, the other thing that is, I think, the need for social insurance is in healthcare. And I've said this before again. Years ago, I would have said I was not crazy about the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. And then I lost my insurance last year and had to go on Minsure, which is um, Minnesota's version of the marketplace, and was able to find a plan. And I have health care. You know, this is not the National Health Service. This is not the government controlling everything in health care. But it is government making it a bit easier so that some people, more Americans, have access to good health insurance and aren't um, just kind of trying to scramble for survival. I think in the future, this is something I want to talk about more, is that we have to find ways of having and developing a conservatism that's not so afraid of the government. Um, because small government, if you're talking about a limited government, which I think is more what we should be talking about, that makes sense. 
if we're talking about small government, well, sometimes small doesn't do a whole lot. And unless that's what we think is okay, maybe we want to reconsider. So we'll talk about that more in another time. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about Israel and Palestine. And um, these are always interesting issues um, because everyone kind of goes to their respective corners and they kind of blurt out all of their kind of uh, uh, talking points. And so if you're a conservative, it's always that we have to cons you know, support Israel. We have to. Israel is this wonderful country and Palestinians, which we don't really as talk as much as we do about Hamas, and they just want to kill us all and all of that. If you're liberal, then Israel is basically a colonial occupier. Um, um, they have come and um, basically imposed apartheid on Palestinians and so on. And those narratives might be comforting to each side, but I think they're a lot of bull and they're not real. What's going on in the Middle East and what has always gone on in the Middle East is far more complicated. And each side has problems. Um, you know, the thing that I've always been bothered with conservatives is this kind of almost everything that of the Jews as being kind of, or Israelis, I should say, as being innocent. Um, and the Arabs almost always are at fault. And I don't think that that's always true. And of course, the problem with progressives is this fact of seeing Israel as if it's some kind of modern version of South Africa, which it isn't, and kind of almost viewing this in the same way that um, sometimes people look at America, um, you know, how we've dealt with especially Native Americans. And that's a little off. Both sides, I think, in some ways don't really deal with history they don't really deal with the uncomfortable parts of um, their narratives and uh, of their sides. You know, the Palestinians, I think, for a long time, have almost always tried to view themselves as the victim. Um, and in some ways they have. But I think we always forget that the fact of the the war during the time of, of Israeli independence, when the UN kind of created Israel, it was separating the British-controlled Palestine into two places, Palestine and Israel. And the Arabs did not like that, and so they fought against Israel. And that's kind of Palestine being lost because they... You know, there could have been actually a country at some point called Palestine, but, you know, there was a war for the independence and that took away what could have been Palestine. 
And then we also have to think about the fact that, you know, during the Six-Day War in 1967, that was what created um, the Gaza Strip and um, the West Bank. And had, we have to remember that Egypt, Jordan, Syria, um, Iraq were all basically the ones that wanted to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Had they not gone to war um, in, in 1967, there probably would not ever have been any occupied territories. But they did. If you move on later to around the year 2000, 2001, one of the last things that um, Bill Clinton was trying to do is try to get a peace deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And they had actually almost come out with a deal. Israel basically presented something that gave Palestine, I believe, almost 90% of what they wanted. And the Palestinians under Yasser Arafat walked away. They thought they could get something better. And 20 years later, they still haven't gotten anything better. Palestine, Palestinians, I think, are, you know, they have suffered, I think, a lot in Israeli society. But it seems like every time that they have a chance to maybe have a better hoped-for future, they turn away from it. And so, in some ways, the Palestinians have to decide and, and settle for what they the best thing that they can get and not thinking that they are going to get the perfect because they're never going to get the perfect. You know, on the Israeli side, I think what has been the problem was especially the the settler issue in um, the West Bank. Um, some of the whole going in and bulldozing Arab homes, I think, you know, even as of currently, you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, the Israelis calling uh, places before they get bombed. Um, and usually the excuse is, is that they called and, of course, um, Hamas um, had, was using the building or whatever. And so, you know, Maybe you shouldn't be in a building with Hamas is sometimes what goes there. Except that, you know, that's probably part of Hamas's plan is, you know, the Gaza Strip is pretty dense. They control the government there and they probably use a lot of buildings partially um, as human shields. And so we shouldn't be shocked. But the fact is, other homes also get bombed. So it's that's also a problem. That's very problematic. Um, you know, Israel has to realize that how they treat the Palestinians is going, there's going to be a response, whether you like it or not. You're not just going to get something. And if you treat people, especially in the West Bank or in the Gaza, in a certain way, you're going to get a response that you're not going to like. 
I think, you know, now, of course, you know, again, I think that there, this is such a complex issue. It's, it's not something that is easy that you can't just say, here's the person that's right and here's the person that's wrong. In some ways it is, it feels like some of the things that happened, um, especially in Israel, and, and their firing of rockets that seems to kill more people than what happens in, in of, of Hamas killing Israelis. It does seem disproportionate. However, um, Hamas in many ways is trying to provoke a response. So they're, of course, shooting into Israel. And you can't really blame Israel for trying to defend itself. Um you know, that's also the problem. And, you know, we also have to hold Hamas responsible because in some ways they're using their own people as cannon fodder to make a point for whatever reason. And so that's kind of um, what we're dealing with in Israel and Palestine is this kind of place where no one is necessarily innocent. Everyone has a role. And this just kind of keeps happening over and over and over again. And I don't know what the answer is. I would love to see a two-state solution to happen. But, you know, one of the things I think that has been a problem is that we don't really have a, a, you know, what really brought about some of the, the peace deals, especially in the 1990s, was that you had a strong and effective um, Israeli left that was very much involved in, in a peace movement and in some ways was pushing Israel towards some type of, of a deal. Um, and that was represented in the Labour Party. But the Labour Party has pretty much collapsed. It's, they have very few seats in the Knesset. Um, the other left-leaning parties are also very weak. And so what you have, in many ways, are, of course, the very strong uh, kind of right-of-center parties that tend to be far less um, willing to engage with the Palestinians. And so... And, and they're the ones that kind of gain the seats in Knesset. And um, I think that helps to make things really bad in, um, in Israel. I don't know. I would like to see some deal worked out someday where there is a Palestine. Um, but I think the Palestinians have to understand that Israel is not going anywhere. They, you can't pretend that they won't exist. And Israel, in some ways, has to learn with the fact that the Palestinians aren't going anywhere and that this is also part of their land. And I think both sides have to find a way of working that out. But right now, I don't think that there is anything um, easy in how to figure this out. And I don't think that things will become any easier. It's not just, 
you know, the collapse of the Israeli left, but things won't become easier until there is some way that Hamas gets out of the leadership in Gaza. You know, unless you can get rid of that, then you can't really move forward. Um, one final thing that I wanted to do before we close is to talk a little bit about um, what it means to change or, or kind of secularization and what it means for, for, church and for churches to deal with a changing society. Um, I will put in the show notes something about um, how pastors are dealing with life in churches after COVID-19. Um, and I also will put in, there's another article about Quebec. Um, Quebec, as you know, is the French-speaking province in Canada. Um, and they have gone through a massive transformation. They were probably considered one of the most religious parts of North America, and especially one of the most religious parts of Canada. Um, but around 1960, something happened which was called the Quiet Revolution. And this was kind of a um, national consciousness. Before that time, the Catholic Church basically controlled everything in Quebec society. After 1960, um, you started to see this quiet revolution. There was more um, talking about pride in being Quebecois, uh, of um, speaking in French. Um, this was the time when we saw the, the rise of the, of the Parti Quebecois um, and René Lévesque, who was who called for secession from Canada to literally um, split off from Canada. All of this kind of the rise of this kind of new consciousness um, among the French-speaking uh, Quebecers really basically caused the collapse of um, the Catholic Church. Um, the state, in many ways, the province took over many of the functions of what the church used to do. And that's when we just saw church attendance just plummeting. Um, there is a figure that between 1986 and 2011, uh, the proportion of Quebec's population that attended church monthly fell from 48% to 17%. Um, the weekly attendance rate now is about 4%, and that is even low by European standards. Um Lots of parishes are closing. Um, many hundreds, as I think in this article that I have, uh, will include uh, former churches are being either demolished or they're re being repurposed as homes or commercial establishments. Um, you know, there is a thing in, in France of the, of the La Cité, of the kind of the people and and a sense kind of that of, a, of secularism is very much strong in France, France itself. And, and I think you're, what you, you're seeing that here in Quebec as well. There are lots of cases where there have been laws that have banned um, kind of wearing anything that has any type of, of religious um, 
you know, a cross or a, a star of David, you know, women being um, a, a kind of wearing uh, a headscarf in some cases, that's, there's been an issue with that. You know, Quebec is a very more secular place. Um, so does that, and, and when you deal with the fact that America has been losing a lot less, has less people who are becoming, um, going to church on a regular basis, what does that mean? Um, is Quebec where we're headed? My own viewpoint is I don't think so. Quebec is very different than most of America because, again, it was so controlled by the Catholic Church um, and, you know, the, the Quiet Revolution changed a lot of things. Quebec's history, especially within Canada, is very unique. Um, so while I think that America is secularizing at a very fast rate, I don't think that, that it will, we will end up as Quebec. Um, we'll end up as something totally American, all of our own. Well, that is it for this this um, episode of um, Spheres of Influence. Uh, I hope that this was a helpful time as we kind of went through a lot of different uh, different topics. Again, if you are ever um, can, please uh, consider uh, giving uh, giving this podcast a rating on whatever podcast platform you listen to, um, and also writing out a review. And um, hopefully in the next, hopefully in the next episode, we will have an interview uh, with someone that is involved in the anti-Trump movement. Um, and I hope, um, and I think it will be a good, good talk. So um, that's it for this episode. Um, this is Dennis Sanders. Take care, everyone, and Godspeed. <laughs>